Hello, everyone. Welcome and a big welcome to the first reading club of the 2022 series. We're very excited to get started on this. It'll be a year long exploration of some of the most important themes today. Uh, and we'll be doing that th through exploring various different readings. It's Thursday, the 27th of January. I'm Alex Hochuli here with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe as usual. Now, most of you will know this, um, but the reading club is exclusively for tier two patrons which is to say those subscribing for $10 a month. Uh, and those people also get access to two regular paywalled episodes a month, same as the $5 subscribers, uh, which include regular guests, extended interviews, in-depth explorations of a topic, and our three articles on current affairs and alpha bonus bonus, in which we respond to your questions and criticisms. If you're not a $10 subscriber, what you're hearing here is an extended excerpt of this first reading club of 2022, of the revamped reading club. So you're going to get the first 30 minutes or so, that is to say the first half or so of this. Um, so you can see what it's about now in this first session of the year and decide if you want to be on board for the rest of it. We've had lots of people wanting to set up local reading clubs to follow along and meet up uh, in real life uh, with listeners to discuss the readings. So uh, as far as I'm aware, there are healthy groups already going on in London, Stockholm, Dublin, Berlin, and Portland, Oregon. But people have come forward looking for other listeners in uh, the following locations, which I'm just about to read in a second. Get in touch with us at info at bungacast.com if you want to be put in touch with other Bunga listeners and form a local reading club where you are. But here, So here's the full list. Uh, in North America, Chicago, LA, uh, Boston, and New England, Southern New England area, New York, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, San Francisco in the Bay Area, Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. And then in Europe, Amsterdam, Berlin, Dublin, Groningen, Leipzig, London, Milan, Munich, Stockholm, Tallinn, and uh, Yorkshire or Northeast England. We've already got lots of questions from you. We've got questions from uh, reading club, local reading clubs as well, which have kind of condensed questions. And that's great. Thank you very much for those. Uh, and it's also really important for us as it helps us sharpen our own thinking about these matters. Um, so we're very excited to get started on this first one. We hope uh, if you haven't joined us, you'll join us for the next ones. And I'm going to give a brief overview now to give you a sense of what's actually in it um, before we actually start discussing the matter at hand. And I'll hand over to Phil in just a second. So. Um, you may have seen on social media and elsewhere, we've posted the syllabus for 2022, and it's arranged around three themes. The first is emergency politics and control, um, obviously in response to the pandemic and the extraordinary measures taken, but also around trying to understand the role that fear plays in the history of this, how the war on terror perhaps laid the ground for the current uh, state of affairs, and look at how emergency politics may develop in the future. Should we be in favor of certain form of emergency politics or not? These are already questions that we're gonna broach uh, in this episode, and we'll carry on discussing them over the course of the first half of the year, because from January to June, we'll be discussing these thinkers like Carl Schmitt today, Giorgio Agamben, um, two different thinkers on the politics of fear, uh, Michel Foucault, and then uh, finally, the last one on climate emergency. We've got two uh, thinkers on that. The notion of a kind of risk society is something that in some ways ties this together. And by chance, one of the main thinkers of risk society will be encountered in the second section. That is to say, Anthony Giddens will be looking specifically at his work on trust in the context of a theme on cynical ideology. 
of course, we'll be starting with Slavoj Žižek, uh, where he ad he addresses that in his first major work very deliberately, um, and also looking at one particular form in which cynicism perhaps applies, which is a conspiracy theory, which is a, a skepticism taken to a sort of paranoid conclusion. And we'll try to uh, see if we can unpick and, and make a distinction between skepticism and paranoia. Uh, and finally, we're going to finish off the year. Uh, the last three sessions will be on the now, I, I think, kind of much discussed theme of neo, neo or techno feudalism, and the idea that capitalism is mutating into something beyond capitalism, something probably worse. Um, so we'll be discussing specifically neo feudalism and then also looking at new forms of domination through technology, the role of platform capitalism, of artificial intelligence, and so on, uh, and also looking at class, at how um, the coming apart of, I guess, what would be called the sort of Fordist compact of the mid-20th century has led to a new form of maybe proletariat, which is more um, atomized than ever before. So in looking at all three of these themes, I think you can probably see that they, the first one deals really with uh, questions of the state and power, the second with ideology, and the third with political economy. But there's a whole range of different approaches um, from sociology, philosophy, psychoanalysis, political theory, and political science across all of these. So um, it's a very big mix. But there's also additional readings which we provide, which we'll try to draw upon as we go forward. Um, so anyway, that's the reading club. I hope you'll join us. Um, again, for any more information, info at bungacast.com. And I'm going to pass over to Phil, um, because Phil is the person who's going to be running, I think, the majority of the first group of sessions, the first theme. Uh, I'll be doing the second uh, section on cynical ideology, and George will be responsible for the third one on techno-feudalism. So anyway, without further ado, Phil, uh, tell us about emergency politics and then about Carl Schmidt. Yeah, well, I hope none, none of the listeners missed it. But uh, we've been ruled through emergency, at least for the last few years, if not before, um, as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, um, and especially in um, wealthy, uh, strangely enough, I suppose, in one respect, this, this has been especially true in the wealthiest, richest states, the most powerful countries in the world, which is to say Western states, um, rather than say where states of emergency are usually kind of or historically perhaps understood as the um, the difficulties encountered by banana republics in the last few years, or at least as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, um, our governments have been ruling through de facto or explicit states of emergency. This is what motivates the theme for this reading, this aspect of the syllabus and this aspect of the reading club. And this is what takes us to Carl Schmidt specifically. So he's a German political thinker from who mainly wrote in the first part of the 20th century. And the reason to think about Carl Schmidt was because he's been a thinker who has been revived um, in recent years and is very familiar to academic debates, um, scholarly debates and academic debates on questions of emergency rule, the rationalization for state power, the justification for state power, especially in times of emergency. And this is particularly interesting, I suppose, because it also forces us to think about rule through emergency that goes, that started before the pandemic, because really Carl Schmidt came into vogue intellectually um, and was the thinker that was used to think about the role of emergency with the, in the aftermath of 9-11. So Schmidt 
someone who was revived intellectually in order to think about the stakes of emergency rule in that context. And it seems to me interesting to go back and think about some of the thinkers who were the core thinkers around the war on terror. So specifically Giorgio Agamben and Carl Schmitt. So the choice um, for the reading is his book, Political Theology, four chapters on the concept of sovereignty, which is um, the text for, um, for this reading club. And before we get stuck into this rather unusual set of essays on the idea of sovereignty and think a bit more about what Schmidt might help us understand about emergency rule, I also wanted to provide a bit of the background and context, both for the reception of Schmidt more recently, but also for Schmidt's original context. Now, usually when Schmidt is introduced um, uh, to be discussed in a particular, um, particularly in the postmodern academy, there's always very easily detected the thrill of transgression when the academic lecturer will tell you that um, Schmidt was a Nazi. And there is, I think, part of the fascination that he exerts over liberal over particularly liberal and um, various kind of postmodern thinkers to whom Schmidt has been so appealing in the last 20 years is the fact of his um, having kind of staked an explicit political position and embodying a political pole against which um, the left, the liberal left and the postmodern academy in particular have defined themselves against. So there is a kind of a vicarious, I think, fascination with authoritarianism that is um, refracted through the broad intellectual interest in Schmidt, um, particularly in the wake of the in the wake of the terror attacks of 2001. So Schmidt is he was a member of the Nazi party in the 1930s and had the famously, I mean, the cliche about Schmidt is that he was called the crown jurist of the Third Reich because he was um, one of the leading constitutional legal theorists of, Weim of the Weimar Republic who plumped to went with the Nazis um, and in particular provided a legal rationale or sought to provide a legal rationale for the Night of the Long Knives when Hitler eliminated um, his left-wing competition in in the Nazi party. And who did Hitler eliminate during the Night of the Long Knives? Alex and George, this, you should both know this. The SA? Yeah, the SA. And particularly, who did he eliminate? The DSA. <laughs> I thought you said Alex. <laughs> Another DSA. Come on, you guys should know this. Who did, what was the, how, who did Hitler eliminate in the Night of the Long Knives? Don't, 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 don't do this. Strasser? This is your, your yes. Strasser. Gregor yeah, Strasser. So. Yes, exactly. <sighs> what was interesting about that was, right, that it was kind of the use of um, the discretionary use of power by the state without even going through any kind of, of any judicial or juridical forms in order to justify that use of power. So in contrast to, say, the Stalinist show trials that would happen later in the 30s, where there was still the going through the forms of admitting guilt, um, this was a justification of the arbitrary use of state power without even the pretense of attributing individual responsibility, um, trying to justify the use of state power through identifying guilt through people admitting their responsibility. It was simply an executive decision um, by the leader to exercise state power against those who had been identified as enemies. Beyond that, though, um, there'll usually be the way, you know, Schmidt will be defended by saying, oh, well, he was also kind of he fell out of favor with the regime and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the truth is he was um, 
if not a fully full-blown Nazi thinker, a, de a deeply authoritarian thinker. And I think this comes through in this text, which, um, as will become apparent um, when we particularly get to talking about the latter chapters of the book. So why was Schmidt so, why did Schmidt seem so appealing in the aftermath of the war on terror? And the reasons for that, I mean, is, you know, fairly obvious. But in this era of unipolar American hegemony, um, and particularly in a post, what appeared to be a post-political era, in which liberal democracy was um, overwhelmingly not only the kind of the dominant ideology, but also the idea of technocratic centrism, of democratic deliberation as the model, that Schmidt became a way to critique that era. And in particularly, I think, and this was also important for the academic left, he became a way to critique American power and liberal democracy, which didn't require them to rely on Marxist critiques, and especially um, Marxist or Leninist critiques of mm -hmm. imperialism. And so Schmidt was rehabilitated in, in that context. But also in the year of the war on terror, you had obviously the black sites, you had the um, use of the American military base in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, as a site of extrajudicial punishment for those who the American state had identified as terrorists. You had the, the legal, um, the express legal justification given through the US presidency for torture, as well as the erosion of international and um, domestic norms around prohibition on torture, the establishment of other black sites around the world where terrorist suspects were also tortured um, and disappeared um, through the um, by the American state and its local allies, as well as the rolling campaign of global assassinations by drones, which again was the extrajudicial use of state power. Um, without being rooted through any kind of even formal kind of um, legal procedures or juridical forms. So all of this was part of the reason um, that Schmidt became his understanding of the use of power outside of the mediating forms of and, and uh, legal juridical forms of political power was why he seemed, why he was uh, so drawn on in this period. So um, that hopefully provides some context and background, both for Schmidt in his in the period in which he was writing, but also why he was rehabilitated towards the end of the 20th century and into the early 21st. Strikingly, he has not really been talked about in the context of the pandemic. So he was talked about in the context of the Trump presidency that, again, left wing academics brought up Schmidt to say that um, Trump was grasping towards the Schmittian vision of leadership with his populist demagogy and his attempt to kind of ident talking about the enemies of the people, his demagogic um, opposition and criticisms and so on. Um, but he hasn't been used in reference to the pandemic when we've actually had rule by emergency for the last couple of years, despite the fact that we didn't actually have rule by emergency under Trump. So did you guys have any general thoughts to kick us off before we get into our specific discussion points? Yeah, just just a, another bit of context. This, um, <clears throat> you know, another thing that Schmidt's famous for is the friend-enemy distinction being the basis of um, basis of politics. This is something which is quite, which has, you know, in the past um, few few decades, a couple of decades, been been relatively um, widely talked about. This idea that it's an it's an us them. It's a it's a kind of a in some ways does bear some similarities to the, the decisionistic kind of account of sovereignty that he gives in in this book political theology um you yeah, know the, the idea that the, the the political like them that 
particular sphere of life is is basically based on essentially an identity um distinction which can be decided on and constructed in a number of different ways but yeah no so i mean um you know a thinker who has uh you know some some appeal across the political spectrum for for different reasons but yeah no i think this was a good a great book to, to kick things things off with um quite a quite a short one good to start with a short one but but complex and uh and dense so a lot to get our teeth into yeah i have a lot of general thoughts but um yeah we can that aren't platitudes (laughs) it was yeah a short book it was nice to read (laughs) i think that's you know you have to start with the material object of of the book um but yeah no i mean let's let's get into the into the argument of it yeah i mean i i on the friend enemy distinction that's probably where i've most popularly uh, commonly encountered um schmidt and kind of popular discussions um but yeah used in many ways to justify being political in contrast to kind of consensus politics but it is a double-edged sword i think to yield because that friend enemy distinction suggests the obliteration of the enemy and it doesn't really necessarily um lead to any transformation of yourself you know, whatever that collective self might be. So it, it's kind of not the same as Marxism. It's a kind of a vulgar idea of Marxism of um, the proletariat abolishing the, you know, destroying, fully destroying the bourgeoisie in a civil war, but no real sense of moving to a higher plane of history. So I think that's where it's tricky. And maybe we'll end up coming back to that. On the book itself, I was struck by how clearly written it was. I don't know if that's credit to the translator or if that's true to um, Schmidt's own writing style in German um, with some very clear declarations at the start of each chapter, which are really useful for getting your teeth into because it's right up there, right at the front. You know, the point about exception, um, that he who decides exception uh, is sovereign, is right up at the top. But as you go through it, I found it personally one of the more difficult texts to read that I've read in a long time in terms of really understanding what was at stake as he goes through discussions of different jurists. Uh, And personally, I only found it was in the last section where he discussed his kind of Catholic reactionaries, the, the, what the political actually is, um, and his criticisms of sort of um, the sort of technical bureaucratic state uh, in the 20, you know, it, already emerging at his time, that I kind of was able to really get my teeth into, yeah, what was what it was about and what was at stake. Um, so I don't know, maybe you guys will be able yeah. to <laughs> make it obvious to me what what I should have been taking from the early chapters. Well, we always we always do that for you, Alex. So it's fine. Mm. We'll be happy to do it on this occasion as well. Um, I think it's interesting. The other point that George reminded me of when he talks about the appeal of Schmidt, um, that is always the way it's framed, like defend, the defensive formulation in trying to justify um, why study this Nazi is, oh, well, Schmidt also had, you know, has appeal on the left. And like I say, this, I think, is it's he has appeal to the post-Marxist left, um, particularly, like I say, because he allowed them to do a critique of liberalism in a very particular way. And I think it's important because it also, so I mean, he was rehabilitated by the post-Marxist kind of theorists of populism, in particular Chantal Mouffe, who was um, the one who made significant efforts even in even before the war on terror to use the idea of Schmittian kind of identity politics, this radical polarization between friend and enemy as the basis of political struggle. She used it as a way to kind as a battering ram against all the consensual models of liberalism and liberative democracy that were all in vogue in political theory in um, over the 1990s. 
So I think that's important as well. His reception on the left is um, is significant. And one more point, I suppose, contextual point, which is, um, and this is, I think, important with respect to how far he was a Nazi. So what Otto Kirchheimer, who is the one of the great, um, one of uh, Schmidt's great opponents in the Weimar Republic and was um, a Marxist legal theorist, he said, and I think this is important also because it helps us better understand Schmidt, he said that Schmidt wasn't, in terms of Schmidt's theory, whatever his political commitments, because he was a card-carrying member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, but that in terms of his theory wasn't Nazi, because his theory, what he didn't understand, and this is what made him suspect ultimately to the Nazis, and which is what made him fall out of favor with the regime after 1936, what he didn't understand was the role of the party. So that more than the state, what mattered to the Nazis was um, loyalty to the Nazi party itself, and rather than loyalty to the state. So to that extent, Schmidt was a more traditional conservative thinker in terms of his attempt to justify state power, whereas the Nazis were more interested in, were suspicious and hostile to the state, even though they needed to capture it, but they, what Schmidt couldn't understand was loyalty to the party. And this so, is what made him a suspect figure. No, that's a good point, because I don't think the party appears at all in this this book, but clearly the sovereignty and the state are tied really closely together. Yeah. So yeah, that was, thanks. That was a very informative contextual point. So this takes us to, I mean, this also justifies, I think, why he is worth looking at, despite the, because if he was a Nazi, you know, Nazi political theory, I think, I mean, what would it be? It would just be, you know, kind of Darwinism transplanted to the political field. Mm. Um, there's no real meaning, you know, to politics, except that it's just the expression of a biological racial struggle. And there isn't anything there to discuss. It's just biology. So to the extent that Schmidt isn't a Nazi, but rather a kind of a conservative authoritarian, and that comes across in this book, then he is worth thinking his attempt to justify state power is worth thinking about and thinking through. Which takes us to our first question, or at least the first thing I wanted to raise to think about, which is why are people scared of sovereignty? Because this is what is fascinating about Schmidt, I think, particularly for um, the liberal left, again, is um, because his focus isn't about justifying state power exactly, right? But it's about sovereignty. He's about trying to justify sovereignty. And people, and this is very evident, I think, particularly from the British vantage point, given that we've been through Brexit in the last few years, it's not that the people who were opposed to Brexit, they weren't afraid of state power. And I were as was evidenced in the lockdown, so many opponents of Brexit were happy to support the most extreme forms of um, state power in terms of the swinging public restrictions, unprecedented sweeping away of civil liberties in the coronavirus um, with the coronavirus legislation. So they weren't afraid of state power, but they were afraid of sovereignty. So I thought just to set the context, not to set the context, but to get us going, what is it about sovereignty that exerts such kind of um, horror and fascination? In it, yeah, yeah. and those who are skeptical of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's got a it's got a kind of monarchical ring to it. The, the word itself, obviously, close to sovereign. So that might be a, you know, the fear of the <clears throat> the scepter and that that orb thing. I can't remember what it's called now. It might just be called the orb that the um, that the sovereign, at least in this country, has. But no, I think for for me, it's like the part. At least part of it must be to do with the concentration or the absolute nature of 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 the power that the sovereign has and that sovereignty expresses because you know that is that is completely opposed to the liberal tradition of 
dividing power of pluralism, checks and balances, and and a whole set of uh, government to defend the individual against the tyranny of the majority. I mean, I guess it, you know, that would be my kind of crude psycho political explanation that it's ultimately the fear of the, you know, the masses or the the majority or the people um, that's carried through to the, the fear of sovereignty, because that's where the, you know, sovereignty makes it very clear. Well, as we will discuss, I guess, not in every case, but popularly evoked sovereignty is, is related to, um, to, to, to the people. And that is a, you know, potentially a frightening uh, thing to have to manage and have to deal with if you're, um, you know, if you're not that, that way politically inclined. I suppose, yeah, go on, Alex. Well, I mean, I related to that, I think that one of the reasons we're scared of sovereignty, I mean, I say we as a sort of collective we that that um, publics today Speak are scared for yourself. of sovereignty, um, <laughs> is that uh, we're too democratic. Now, I mean that in a very specific sense, that post that democracy in the sense of a sort of postmodern habitus, right, of, of a place where um, society is individualistic and pluralistic, and where there can be no final determination. So you're free to explore yourself and no one can tell you what to think. No one can tell you that they're better than you. There is no, um, you know, that we're completely post-deferential society. And so the idea that someone might try to impose something on you, that there might be restrictions on who you can be, you know, the full self, the fully free self-determining subject is completely anathema to today. Now, I mean that in a very narcissistic sense, right, that you are free to self-determine and the appeal, even, for example, the traditional workplace is seen as problematic because it's too hierarchical. Everyone wants to be self-employed, whether it's to run your own business and be the boss or to just be self-employed freelance. And so even the appeal of something like Uber is that um, however onerous the conditions and all the rest of it and the lack of actual autonomy that you have, it gives this a notion that you are free to decide when to get in your car, turn on the app and pick up passengers. Um, And so that kind of sense of democracy that I think we generally have a very democratic culture today, not in the sense of popular power, but in the sense of um, having no one dominate you and have no one be seen as culturally better than you, right? That we're kind of all strongly against any form of cultural elitism. Uh, in that sense, that that everything is that everyone is kind of an equal, separate individual, um, and I think to to just to refer to the text, um, that is the opposite of any kind of final determination that sovereignty implies. In the last chapter, um, Schmidt is quite open about this in in reference to this. Uh, Catholic reactionary Donoso Cortes, who sounds like a barrel of laughs, by the way. <laughs> I love that bit. Just the descriptions of him, like, wow, this guy is this guy's heavy. <laughs> this guy's like a real Catholic reactionary who is just like humans are fucking terrible. Anyway, they don't um, make they don't make them like that anymore. No, do they? they don't. They really don't. Um, but well, you know, he refers. Well, he refers. Maybe he, greens, but. Yeah, well, not the, yeah, not the same. But anyway, Schmidt refers to the to 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 uh, rather Cortes, the bourgeoisie as a disgusting class, una clase discutidora. Um, so it, this definition contains the class characteristic of wanting to evade the decision, a class that shifts all political activity onto the plane of conversation in the press and in parliament, um, which would be no match for social conflict. Um, and just a few uh, little bit later on, he says. 
um, that this the, the bourgeoisie, it wanted neither the sovereignty of the king nor that of the people. What did it actually want? It, what it wants is endless discussion, um, no final decision ever to be taken. And I think here that, that you have the two different things um, combined today, where you have the fear of the decision, the kind of traditional bourgeois feel of fear of the decision, um, with a kind of postmodern fear of any determination. I can be freely self-determining as a as myself individually. Um, when I go to the voting booth, that is not a public moment. That is me in the confessional booth expressing my my true desires and true feelings and beliefs uh, that I have come up with entirely on my own. Um, and so that kind of narcissistic individualism, I think, meets that bourge, more traditional bourgeois fear of uh, decision in this resistance or hatred of, of sovereignty, of any kind of final determination. So you're saying that the bourgeoisie is the disgusting, not disgusting, but disgusting class. They're scared of sovereignty because it means the end of the conversation. The discussion is over. Eff effectively, but yeah, that yeah. there's... Yeah. Mm. So I mean, there's there's another. But, but, but the postmodern, but the postmodern self doesn't want any discussion because even debating mm. means imposing yourself on another person, and you know it's like no, that's just my opinion. You cannot, you know, the the, the postmodern subjectivism that we have today, where even debating someone or saying that they're wrong is like no, this is a, a, an entire offense to myself and who I've decided yeah. to be. There's, I mean, there's a there's another reason why we might be scared of sovereignty, and that's the sort of we 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 should be to the extent that. You know, it's like the Leviathan, the big, the big guy in in Hobbes, who's guy. made up of all, who's made up of all the little guys. Um, that to to a certain extent, that there is an awesome kind of collective power, like that's expressed through the idea of sovereignty. So maybe that kind of there should be a bit of uh, you know, or is fear and love or whatever. You know, the awesome power of the of the Leviathan, the sovereign. It's maybe it's the appropriate. No one, um, but no one wants reaction. the sublime. No one wants the sublime of of uh, you know sovereign authority. It's, it's. I think that's right. And you raise an interesting point, Alex, about the discussing. You know, the classical kind of classical nineteenth century model of the bourgeoisie is the discussing class, whether or not that fits, given um, the general kind of fear and hostility, or the um, insistence on controlling public debate that seems to be so such an important part of liberalism. Um, today and whether so that that kind of classical model of liberalism on that that idea of the discussion the parliamentary kind of um, parliamentary debate is the highest form of kind of political activity um yeah it's gone and i guess that that is an interesting you know that's an interesting point with respect to characterizing liberalism today but it does you know at the same time there is also the liberal kind of fixation with power um but not sovereignty and i guess that's what that's what's fascinating to me. I mean, you think about kind of um, liberal reverence for um, liberal reverence for, I don't know, NATO, for instance. NATO is um, the kind of the ultimate um, humanitarian protector. Or you see the way liberals kind of are demanding, you know, kind of um, demanding brinkmanship from America at the moment in Ukraine. Um, risking the possibility of a great power standoff, maybe, you know, even kind of obviously elevating the risks of stumbling into a nuclear war. Um, so there is, you couldn't accuse liberals of being um, indifferent to power, I think, but they are hostile to sovereignty. And that's the difference. And I guess kind of uh, perhaps drawing out what both of you are saying, I mean, the resistance, I guess, is to authority. It's to the idea of supreme supreme concentrated political authority 
that isn't um, the authority of the expert, isn't the authority of the judge, but rather the authority of um, the pure kind of that idea of pure collective political power. Wow. Um, and, you know, to, to, to take it back to the um, Todd McGowan book, like that, or like in the modern era, that authority ultimately has to be has to be us. And that is kind of frightening. You know, that old Sartre point, like, you know, you know you're really afraid of freedom. You're really afraid of having to take authority, um, an authoritative position and take responsibility for for your life individually and collectively. It's quite vert- verti- vertigo-inducing freedom. So I guess then that moves us to the question of how Schmidt defines sovereignty. What is, I guess, in the significance of his definition of sovereignty? Because this is the definition of sovereignty that has drawn so many um, commentators and analysts and theorists to him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good. The, 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 so chapter one, definition of sovereignty, line one, sovereign is he who decides on the exception. It's kind of, I like that, you know, getting right to the, uh, cutting right to the, to the chase. I mean, and that's good. Because yeah, so tied very explicitly to exceptionalism. Yeah, so I guess I guess what he's you know that's the, and obviously anybody who's read even as I said like the first sentence of the book will 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 have have, have read that. But yeah, I mean that's essentially the way that I would would see it is that that's the you know sovereignty in here is in a relationship between norms and exceptions, and that's that becomes really. Um, uh, relevant today, really vivid and really appealing. I mean, to to be able to to have a, a theory of, of of power, a theory of the the state, a theory of all the things that sovereignty, you know, could could relate to that that kind of speaks directly to the state that we possibly feel ourselves to be in at the moment, one of exception. Um, and I think, you know, that that is why it is so so appealing and why it makes sense or it would have made sense you know for for schmidt to be picked back up in the covid period as he was in the war on terror period yeah i i'm as i as i said my kind of introductory comment or my first response actually is that i can get my teeth into the notion of um you know he who decides the exception is sovereign um and i can more or less follow through um the his Schmidt's discussions of other legal theories and, and the sort of theories that he's standing against, um, specifically those that see the state as sovereign or those that see the law as sovereign. I think those are broadly speaking those that he opposes to. And so this person of the so and again, it's the person of the sovereign because again, it's he's emphasizing goes through the sort of intellectual history um, in which the personalization of the sovereign is lost. Um, and it and it not just, of course, uh, the monarch, which he recognizes is no longer possible to, you know, the, 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 the legitimacy of, of monarchical succession is no longer possible in the modern era. Um, but that nevertheless, you need some sort of personification of sovereignty, I think, and the role of decision in that, you know, um, which I can only understand as being dictatorial, unless you read it more metaphorically in which the people come to take that, you know, be be personified as sovereign, um, and the people to take that decision. Um, yeah, but he doesn't. I mean, he explicitly, sort of yeah, he explicitly way. cuts against Rousseau. Exactly. Yeah, because he insists that it has to be. Um, so if you know the 
the popular element I think is there um, in the sense of there's some kind of, you know, there's some notion of a collective, a political collective, um, which is abstract and indeterminate, or rather it's only made determinate through the decision of a leader. So it's democratic only, it's not democratic in the sense of um, mediated structures of political representation for the majority, but rather the um, idea that the the kind of the will, collective will is instantiated in the decision of an individual, of, uh, of an individual leader. And again, I mean, the affinity with um, the affinity with the Nazi idea of leadership should be clear. I guess the it's also evident, I guess, why he was drawn to define sovereignty in this way as against the the formulation of sovereignty. So on the one hand, you had the um, formulation of sovereignty in these kind of in intensely abstract legal terms. Um, and he takes aim against Hans Kelsen, who is the great um legal liberal legal philosopher of the interwar period in the first part of the 20th century he takes aim against him and ultimately that kind of idea of authority of legal authority is grounded in has to be grounded in a international legal order and so very much embedded in the international legal order of the league of you know embodied in the league of nations the international organization of the time whereas with schmidt um, and the, what he opposes in that. So I guess in the context of all of the challenges and the political fragmentation besetting the Weimar Republic, he focuses not on the idea of sovereignty as establishing on its ordinary functioning, but on how sovereignty functions at the extreme. And that, I think, again, I mean, it speaks to his interest in it is speaks to the context and he's very kind he's almost blasé about you know um about the uh kind of swiping away other ideas of sovereignty he says you know the extreme is more interesting or the exception is more interesting than the norm the exception tells you everything you need to know about the norm and that this um kind of wedge this conceptual wedge that he drives into the question is how he attempts to kind of lever open the entire thing and to make it um, to push forward this idea of sovereignty, which is entirely decisionistic in yeah. the exercise but, but, of arbitrary will and political leadership. Phil, I mean, I wanted to ask you, do you, because you, you know, studied sovereignty for a long time. Do you agree with Schmidt's definition of it? No, I mean, I, I mean, it's not to say, I think he, I mean, he's right. I think very clearly in the idea that the sovereign is at once um, kind of outside of the law as well as the origin of the law, but to define to define um, sovereignty by the exception, it seems to me is too easy, um, because really sovereignty or the hard part of sovereignty is about the norm, um, and so and the real question of political order is about um, is about the norm. So it's a it's a bit like I mean I suppose the Chestertonian response is the right one here, so. Um, famously J.K. Chesterton, you know, when he says kind of he's talking about the romance, what is so appealing and romantic about the criminal or the underworld figure when he says, in fact, civilization is the kind of the greatest criminal romance of all. It's the how social order, how social progress and political order is maintained is a is the most kind of um, is the grandest um, 
and in many ways darkest conspiracy of all. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that would be my response to Schmidt's um, idea of sovereignty as um, just uh, arbitrary will and decision by these decisive romantic political figures, which is where, you know, where it leads to. Yeah, I mean, but he's still, I mean, he's certainly, um, and it's difficult to, to know without knowing that what these um, uh, kind of early 20th century or late 19th century, like German legal scholars uh, thought about sovereignty, but certainly the idea that, you know, uh, the the exception is like an, an aberration. It's actually not like, it's not important. Um, and really it's just the day-to-day running of things. And the exception is like, can be disregarded. Oh, that's just like politics, which is like not really to do with law or, or sovereignty or anything like that. We, you know, we just, you know, skirt over those things because it's, it's not normal business. It's like, that, you know, that's what I'm saying. So I'm not defending, I'm certainly not defending the kind of hyper abstract Kelsonian no. idea of sovereignty, which is nothing but this kind of ramified series of laws and ultimately, it's just lawyers and judges kind of all the way down. Um, but rather, it's more that he understands politics purely in terms of our, essentially these arbitrary existential decisions. So yeah, and his restriction so... of politics to that. So I'm not I'm not going in the opposite direction and saying that sovereignty is all legal form, but rather that politics is more than just the arbitrary decisions of the leader. Yeah, no, sorry, I wasn't. I, that's not what I was saying that you were saying. But like, it's they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. He's he's picking all these people who have this very implausible idea that, you know, sovereignty is just like making the laws. And then he's like, no, it's all about suspending the laws. And it's like, I mean, but th- having said that, it is a, you know, that idea of the, the ability to define what is the emergency and by implication to define what is normal. I mean, that has to... <laughs> That has to resonate with anybody who's reading this in 2022 yeah. as as something which like is a is a really important political and legal uh, problem because that's you know that's that's where we are at the moment I would you know, would uh, suggest yeah so I would I mean that's so I mean we need to move on to the question of political theology but I suppose that would be my answer to you, Alex the short version without the reliance on the Chestertonian point but that sovereignty the hard part of sovereignty is about making the law rather than breaking it and i think schmidt's emphasis though you know conceptually true is misplaced Uh, the theoretical kind of emphasis that he places on the exception is misplaced and also serves his purposes in the context of trying to justify authoritarian stronger leadership and uh, more authoritarian rule in the weimar republic so this moves us to political theology, which is uh, the name of the book after all. And this has been kind of, this is an endless source of fascination to me, um, both because of, I mean, in two respects, both in terms of Schmidt's account of it, but also in terms of the way in which um, political theology was used. So in the academic debates that I've had in in um, in universities when I would, in discussing and theorizing sovereignty, uh, political theology was always the way in which the critics of um, sovereignty would you would deploy to undercut the idea. So they would always say like, oh, political, you know, this is just political theology. Um, the sovereign is this Christian idea of God. It's all kind of all theories of sovereignty are formulate, you know, these attempts to kind of apologize for evil, the same way that theologians used to once upon a time try to justify how evil can be reconciled with the God who is at once omnipotent and um, loving. 
And so all of this, all of these structures are simply hollowed out Christian concepts. And this was always a move in order to effectively delegitimize the idea of political power and authority. And that doesn't seem to me to be the form that Schmidt intends when he takes the same point about our politi modern political concepts being hollowed out Christian concepts. He seems to deploy it in a different way. Yeah, he says um, that in well, in his in his view, that all the all the concepts of the modern theory of state are secularized theological ones, and so the you know the exception is analogous to a, to a miracle. So it's like, and there is something, there is a kind of an, an interesting analogy there in terms of like the the structure of faith is all about the miracle, the thing that cannot be explained other than by um, uh, reference to the to something outside of the. The, the physical world and you know the same things sovereignty can't be explained other than by reference to something outside of the normal legal political world i mean i i did write down as <laughs> in, in in my notes for this like who is god equals political theology and i mean at the time i think that was a really clear um searing insight and but now it's not it's not quite as clear what i meant by that i think it's i think it is something about like he's he could only see authority as coming from 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 God and not man. So the whole, I mean, that's why he is a, as you sort of were saying at the beginning, Phil, like a, a an authoritarian and a kind of a conservative one, is that there has to be a un a unitary thing which is at the top of everything, and that's that's God or that's the sovereign, and so that's the kind of the structure of his his thought is a very you know crudely theological one in that sense, perhaps. He's happy, I think. I mean, I suppose the point is he's happy, he's happy. with the well. He's oh, happy with the idea of he's he uses the idea of political theology to motivate and justify um, the only way in which this the kind of uh, the structure of political theory can be coherent is if it accepts the fact of its origins in medieval Christianity. I think in his so his drawing attention to the theological origins is to motivate. Um, confidence about the role of state power, and so the analogies he, you know, he's using it. I think in order to um, to be encouraging the reader and those who support him to be um, to be comfortable with the idea of state power and to fully accept um, the character of it. You know, he has this wonderful kind of uh, metaphor where he says the role that the sovereign plays in all these different forms of legal and political theory it keeps on changing forms. And this is exactly the role that God can perform in traditional religion. And so and we can only understand this by reference to God. And I suppose what I was saying was, though, it, when we the contemporary kind of deployment of political theology is often to undercut the idea that there has to be any kind of authority at all. Yeah. So that was the way in which I normally encountered political theology was kind of this very high handed. Oh, these are just kind of, you know, this is sovereignty is nothing more than kind of a Christian idea of God emptied out. And anyone who, by extension, anyone who believes in sovereignty or the idea of, you know, um, public power, political authority is a dupe, kind of an idiot, the same way like a medieval peasant is an idiot believing in these primitive superstitions. Yeah, um, I don't I don't like that argument it's a bit like you know marxism was the god that failed um bolshevism has the same structure of christianity where like you're going to have this the savior slash the proletariat or the party or whatever is going to come and 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 save everything and and that's supposed to be a way to kind of <clears throat> dis disregard marxism a kind of feel like 
there's a seeing that or alleging that there's a similar structure um, between these two sorts of thought and then saying, therefore, because, you know, nobody believes in God anymore, therefore, Marxism we, yeah. authority yeah, must be must be well, bullshit. But we didn't. I don't think we should. Uh, well, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure it helped. It's conflating two separate things. But yeah, no, I mean, I agree also with Phil that it's a way of um, getting rid of authority altogether. But of course, uh, and this is, of course, a, a running concern of liberalism throughout, you know, and, and Schmidt, <laughs> as I already said, you know, Schmidt says, like, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want a king, and they didn't want God, but they what do you want sort of thing. Um, and the, the idea is also that there's a, I think, an unrecognized, uh, an authority that doesn't speak its name in liberalism, which is the market, and especially in today's times, where there's no, no other authority other than the market and your own individual ability to explore your own self within the market which is I, where i started this i don't hang on let me, sorry, let me, just, let me just finish let okay, me just finish this okay. and then you can come back to it because that's that's what's left is this authority that doesn't speak its name in the, in the name of the market but what schmidt sees that as is this sort of infernal machine and he's with he's with weber here and seeing kind of technical bureaucracy as this self-running machine uh, society as a giant factory almost though those aren't the terms that he um, he uses it. That's a more Marxian um, kind of terminology, I suppose, but um, which has come to be formed in the place of where sovereignty should be. And so he traces the kind of secularization of the um, of this sort of of, of, of this sort of the more theological notion of sovereignty um, already in the 19th, 18th and 19th century under the influence of deism, where society, where this whole thing is a machine that runs by itself. Right. And that um, at most you have God in the background as the watchmaker. By the 19th century, this is already much more secularized and scientific. And certainly by the 20th century, um, you have the state as this huge machine that runs without any kind of central point of authority or, or the sovereign. Um, and it's we it's weird because at the very end, um, Schmidt tries to kind of humanize this or bring the human element back in through the personalization of the sovereign, but also through the role of decision-making. So, so it's not just this vast machine of the state that somehow runs according to its own logics, um, but there's no central authority to it. And it's weird because it's, it's, it runs very counter to our kind of secular notions today, but in some ways the kind of bringing God back in or the, 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 the kind of God that's lacking is, all, is, a, is a way paradoxically of humanizing it. And what is anti-human, I guess, in, in Schmidt's view, is precisely technical, bureaucratic 20th century civilization, and even more so in the 21st century. Um, and it's and one final point, and here a Marxist point, is that it's interesting he cites the young Friedrich Engels saying that the essence of the state as that of religion is mankind's fear of itself. Um, which Such a great quote. It's such a great quote, which of course is about you know, Marx's understanding, and I think that's where you have to start with Marxism, its understanding of religion as the alienation of human powers and its projection onto something else. Um, and the state too. And, and onto the state too. And that's why some people machine. are scared of sovereignty. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. As I said, yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, I suppose that's what I wanted to get at was, um, and then we can move on. Is the, you know, so from the liberal point of view with the political theology, it's to claim that all of that is, um, you know, super so much kind of superstition. Um, whereas I think the a better view, and this isn't quite Schmidt's view, but it is to understand those. You know, it's rather to understand. Um, 
those theological, you know, theological debates about um, divine sovereignty and so on, is to understand them rather as primitive kind of graspings towards a human idea, an idea mm. of um, of what kind of human order looks like, and obviously in a particular, in a more primitive context, technologically, which is to say, technologically primitive and backward, they reach outside of humanity in order to find a kind of a source of external authority to maintain humanity. But it's the beginnings of an attempt to find to establish um, a human place in in um, in the world. And so that seems to me, so it's possible to humanize, I think, the points about political theology in a way that evades the um, the kind of the sneering liberal response, that it's all, all of this is superstition. And we're still superstition. You know, if you believe in sovereignty today, you're still kind of um, a dupe. Um, where, well, at the same time, acknowledging, you know, the fact that we live in this um, kind of historical continuum to a degree of struggles to impose to impose ourselves and to establish forms of um, discipline in ourselves, forms of control um, through which we realize our our goals and also realize our freedom. So just just a quick final point on this kind of political theology stuff. I, I was I rudely interrupted Alex earlier when he was saying that the you know the authority that dare not speak its name of, of the market, and I think like so Schmidt does say that the the um the bourgeois liberalism, its um religion lies in freedom of speech and the press. And I think it might I think that now we're faced with a bourgeoisie that doesn't believe anymore. They've lost their faith, man, in the market. Like who really defends the market other than you know, a, a very small number of of Thatcherites or or bow tie wearing libertarians? I mean, it's all like, you know, backing away from this, from this belief that the um the liberal bourgeoisie had um, previously, and I think you know that's, you know, it's it's a wider symptom of a of a society that's that's lost its you know superstitions and as and I think you're right there, Alex. This kind of Weberian point disenchanted any of those things which they used to believe in. They they now see them as uh, pre as as uh, superstitions, which in the case of sovereignty is as a mistake. It's also something that they miss. Um is you know so marx's answer so he the final chapter where he talks about the catholic reactionaries who developed their political theory in response to the french revolutions um the, well the french revolution and also the revolutions of 1848 um you know when he says they want they don't want the king and they don't want um they want neither king nor god what do they want and marx's answer well they want to make money right and that is what they actually want Whereas for Schmidt, it's, um, you know, he kind of has this uh, naive, he raises the question naively, what do they want? There was actually, you know, there was something that they were clear on. And that is why they wanted neither God nor King is because they wanted to make money, but they didn't have anything more positive to, is by way of uh, justifying their role to society at large, leaving them in this kind of um, open-ended, open-ended place in which they were liable to criticism, both by socialists by Marxists as well as by by um, reactionaries who harked back to monarchy and God. So we can't really get into, we don't have time, unfortunately, to get into the Catholic reactionaries, because it is, I think it's interesting in itself that it's the most, it's the kind of the, perhaps the most um, well-written part of the book. And the fact that he so explicitly counterposes his own ideas here, his reverence and kind of fascination for the Catholic reactionaries, I think, makes clear 
his own political views much more clearly than the earlier chapters, and the fact that he explicitly counterposes it to the Marxism of the 19th century is all, you know, I think it's important and tells, it's also interesting that it's the chapter that gets forgotten in many contemporary debates. It's left behind. Everyone, when there's scholarly debates about Schmidt, it's always sovereign, is he who decides the exception, but there's never any talk about Bonald or Donoso Cortez. But we need to move on. So thank you, first of all, again, for all the questions that everyone has sent in. And we had some particularly um, detailed ones from the London Reading Group. So we'll work through those before we move to some questions we received from some other listeners individually. Um, so in terms of the, the London Reading Group sent us a series of questions. And the first issue that was raised in their discussion was identifying contemporary sources of sovereignty whether or not it's possible to locate a clear, um, a clear source of public authority, given the fact that on the one hand, um, there's the authority, the kind of veneration and elevation of experts, which has been particularly pronounced in the pandemic in terms of following the science, um, and how far that model is compatible with um, how far the idea of technical authority in the form of follow the science is compatible with Schmidt's political theory, there's also about whether or not the PMC is sovereign um, in the James Burnham's idea of the managerial state as a single integrated set of institutions, and also the idea of whether or not capital is sovereign. So in the sense of just economic, the economic power of um, capital itself, given the uniform character of or how you could see kind of a common response to um, across so many different countries to the pandemic, whether or not that might indicate a, you know, an underlying kind of source of power, which would in fact be capital itself, rather than any specific set of legal or political institutions or groups of people. Yeah. What do you guys um, think? No, interesting set of questions. I think the the idea that um, the, the science, capital T, capital S, is sovereign. It's like to think that through in in kind of the context of what of, of Schmidt's idea uh, or, or theory of sovereignty is 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 kind of interesting because it's like yeah okay who decides on the exception how is this constructed um well the way it was constructed during the pandemic was a, a very scientistic one i mean that doesn't fully answer the question of who it is who gets to decide like because the science is not sort of self-interpreting who gets to decide at which point you've you've gone from the normal to the to the exceptional but it does it does strike me just hearing you relay the, these um these questions that it's like yeah i mean what would it some people i think would be relatively happy with abstract if if you had the you know i'm not going to say that the science capital t capital s is personified in someone like richard dawkins but if you had like the science as a person this is a benevolent um kind of sovereign who will make the right decisions um over the exception and will essentially be a kind of um a benevolent dictator or a reasonable dictator so i think there is sort of some something of interest in in like trying to really get behind like okay so the exception was defined in this really scientific way but who what structures allowed that to happen in the first place i think it's an it's a kind of uh interesting way to to dig into it yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, as I think you're hinting at, George, that that the science or experts are sovereign in any way. In fact, they're not even taking decisions. They're a cloak that actual decision makers use to bolster their own authority. 
Um, but you know, it's not literally the whatever the the epidemiological modelers who ultimately decide what is going to be done. Um, you know, so their 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 authority is borrowed um, consistently, um, but there's no real political decision that's made. Because it's hidden, the, the, the actual political decision is hidden behind this um, facade of expert authority of the science. Um, I actually think, you know, if we're going to try to locate sovereignty today, if there is, um, it would be, and I, I think I hear be kind of like following Adam too, is it's the central banks, you know, central banks are sovereign um, and they're sovereign because they are the, the ones who are ultimately making the important economic decisions and not maybe in tandem with the executive, obviously not legislatures, right? Legislatures are not sovereign. Um, and they've been withered away and the executive and technical bodies have become more important. Um, but ultimately sovereign, I think you could make an argument, I may be being a bit cheeky with this, that it's the central banks, not least because they are the ones who now decide the exception. And because if you look at what central banks, we've discussed this on the podcast before, both with Adam Tews and, and prior, um, that central banks are do no longer follow their own rules in terms of what they should, in terms of their inflation targeting and whatever that they used to um, look at other factors. And there was a you know formula which would say that, okay, um, there was actually a good piece in the FT yesterday about this, that, you know, the kind of, that, or actually today, today there's an op-ed in the FT. And um, we can link to it, I guess, if, if it's relevant. Um, but that, you know, inflation, excuse me, that the central bank interest rate should have been set at like 5% throughout most of the 2010s, but it wasn't, it was kept at zero. And even now it should have been increased and it hasn't been because there's no systematic um, policy for setting interest rates anymore. It's just the decisions of the central bankers trying to seek political ends directly, not just inflation targeting, but we need the, the economy to move in this direction. We need this to happen, or we're worried about revolts so we're going to keep interest rates low or whatever the the the, the central bankers are a central committee making key political decisions now um and that i think is closer to sovereignty than anything else around right now yeah that's a it's a interesting it's a intriguing proposition provocative um, it's a provocative thesis no, it's not a provocative thesis it's um and it's one that i'd forgotten i'd forgotten Tuz's point in relation to this but it's good to throw it in the next the next um question from the london reading group i think is more is more pointed and um and we should think about it um i think uh, very seriously so this and i'll just read out the question here does the left need a sovereign of the sort schmidt describes i mean you can be uh, brutal or dismissive or, or whatever, but you, I mean, the state of exception, but good, actually, that was sort of the left's like response to the pandemic, really. I mean, these undemocratic emergency powers were actually justified and good and, and used to follow the science and to protect. I mean, I might be being a little bit cynical, but it's, and you know, exaggerating, but I think the left. No, but it's crucial, right? And I mean, it's so Owen Jones, kind of the Guardian columnist here, kind of hysterically denouncing the Tories. Um, and then he said, I welcome. It was very odd because he said it without irony, and yet he clearly thought it was funny at the same time. Um, having denounced the Tories, far right, nationalists, xenophobes, bigots, and so on. Then he said, when they established the coronavirus emergency legislation, the lockdown in March 2020, he said, I welcome the establishment of the Tory police state. And I think he even added 
immediately face emoji after it. Um, knowing, kind of conscious of the irony and yet fully, fully serious at the same time. And you're right. I mean, so that was a state of smiley face, state of exception that um, in that in that instance, um, they were happy, you know, that Schmitty and the decision, sovereign, a sovereign decision was made to institute uh, an exceptional, to suspend ordinary civic, social and political life and institute an emergency regime, and the left supported it. So it's an interesting, yeah, anyway, George, sorry, I wanted to add to what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's, you can see in that example, but I think more broadly is that it's, you know, sovereignty for me, but not for thee. And the right does the same thing, you know, we want sovereign authority to be imposed on uh, you know, immigration, close all the borders. But when it's something which they don't like, it needs to be, sovereignty needs to be diffused, there needs to be endless negotiation, um, kicked up to committees and whatever else. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the general approach today, right, in the kind of culture wars. Because everybody, I've made this point before, that each side demands its own emergency politics. This needs to be rammed through to solve climate change. This needs to be rammed through to solve to, to stop, you know, immigrants coming in or whatever it might be. So I guess um, we're turning the question around then to the London Reading Group, isn't it? It seems as if the left rules through, emer- if the left rules, it already rules through emergency, or at least is happy to justify. Certainly you could say the left ruled through emergency as well during the Eurozone debt crisis, right? Syriza would be the example there. Um, but also the in, you know, Owen Jones's justification for state power in the coronavirus pandemic, there you had a Schmittian a Schmittian left, right, at work. And so to that extent, does the left need a sovereign of the sort that Schmidt describes? You could say we have a, a sovereign of the sort that Schmidt describes, and it has been, for better or for worse, I mean, I think, you know, we're all agreed for worse, at least among the three of us, it has been endorsed by the left. Well, one, one just important point I might add to that is that it doesn't, it's not an exact fit because, you know, this, well, actually, I'm, I, I'm trying to think if Schmidt does does say this. Like, does the sovereign need to say, "I'm"? I think they do. Needs to say, "I'm making an exception." Like, I'm making an exception, and I am the sovereign, and I can do that because that's not really what happened during the pandemic. It wasn't like we're going to be the sovereigns, and we're going to like from the left's point of view, and we're going to make an exception. It was more like we there is a state of exception, and these things have to happen. And like, you we know, endorse, we, we endorse state power. We can't do anything all, about it. Weren't they all done through laws? I mean, they were all, there were laws. Yeah, but exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there doesn't, I don't think Schmitz requires just executive discretion, but it was emergency laws, right? So in the case of Britain, I mean, the left, it wasn't the left that was in charge and politically, um, but they certainly endorsed it. But in the States, I mean, the Biden administration, right, which um, propagated the lockdown, certainly, Right, you could make the say, case that it was um, it was Schmittian, um, and indeed, I mean, it's a point that one of the one of the most um, one of the I mean, best let the Biden commentators... administration than, than than democratic state level administrations imposing lockdowns. and them too, right? But also the um, well, okay, fair enough. But I mean, there was federal emergency, you know, kind of the emergency regime was propagated by the federal government. But it's also a point which was made by William Scheuermann, who's one of the best um, commentators um, on Schmidt and one of the best kind of Schmittian-inspired academics uh, writing at the moment. And he said, since 9-11, the US state can effectively run the whole country through emergency law and administration without even the need to, without really the need for recourse even to Congress, that it has all the powers that it needs to. So, I mean, those, that Schmittian state 
is embedded, right, and has been embedded and operated. Those levers have been operated, including by the Obama administration. So I guess our answer to to the the London Group question is that the left does have this. The next question, I guess, would be: Should the left um, have a sovereign of the sword that Sh of Schmittian describes? And this is, I think, um, I mean, it's the follow-on. It's kind of embedded, implied in the question, and it's a follow-on one, and it's a trickier one to answer. I mean, I think certainly, like the left, if we think of um, Andreas Malm, for instance, who we had on some episodes back to talk about his um, demand for war communism as the solution to the climate crisis, and his insistence on an emergency that brooked the need to kind of undercut constant parliamentary parliamentarianism or griping about maintaining living standards or other kind of goals there was an immediate need to address this pressing emergency a genuine authentic emergency that required not just political you know kind of the suspension of civil liberty but an an entire reconfiguration of capitalism itself so there you have kind of a leftist understanding of the need for the transformation of capitalism motivated by a, a environmental emergency. So it seems to me at least that the left is Schmittian, um, just as much as the right was Schmittian with respect to the war on terror, the left is Schmittian in terms of motivating its arguments by reference to emergency. And that seems to me to be the case. Um, and so there is no, there is no, I can't think of any kind of um, political offer that isn't on me kind of substantial or legitimate political offer made by political actors today that is not based on emergency yeah well maybe I, maybe I, this is i agree yeah, yeah i mean maybe then yeah it's, it's kind of interesting right that there's always a there's a there's always a, an emergency or, or a danger i mean you know we're going to be talking about, about a couple of books on fear and the politics of fear and that's i think it's definitely related it's a it's known or recognized as a very effective mobilization and demobilization technique to invoke an emergency <clears throat> a danger and um you know to manage populations in that way but no, I mean, it's another I good it's, question it's, from it's, it's, oh, of course none of these involve actually taking state power it's petitioning state the petitioning the state to impose an emergency yes and that's a really important point so i think that would obviously brings us onto the question of should i do we want to do this now i mean should the left i mean the left well is marxism make him more you know, is marxism, is marxism exactly. an emergency politics right yeah so if you think of marxism in the 20th century at least um you know i mean you could say classically it is right um, the dictatorship of the proletariat, there's a debate about how far it's inspired by the Roman theory of dictatorship, um, which is the idea of the, I mean, the proletariat itself, right, is a Latinate word um, and was inspired by um, the propertyless masses of ancient Rome. And whether the dictatorship of the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat was a Roman one, that um, the dictate the, the proletariat assumes um, power under the principles of emergency rule, it reorders society reorders politics and society in such a way as to establish, configure a new, um, more stable social order that is no longer prey to um, all the instability associated with capitalism and thereby sets the, and then, you know, that kind of um, 
the the need for that political power is gradually um, is gradually kind of self-abolishing in the traditional kind of Roman way. So the Roman mm-hmm. dictator, under the terms of the Roman constitution, the Roman dictator would step in, temporarily exercise power, and then step back. And obviously that model only lasted um, so long because the republic um, fell into empire. Um, but it's a question as to whether or not Marxism is an emergency politics. I mean, I don't if, buy it. I don't, I don't well, buy me, it. I mean, so let me make the so let me just make the other case though before okay. you respond, George. So you could take it back to the you know there's the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then you could also say Leninism, right? So the Leninist response to the First World War, um, the betrayal of the Second International parties supporting. Um, voting through war credits, supporting the war. And the emergency there is the absolute need to end the slaughter of the working class, the mutual slaughter of the international working class on behalf of national elites, demanding in Lenin's terms, the conversion of the world war into a civil war and the seizure of state power. And that seems to me to be even more, if not the Roman if, if indeed the dictatorship of the proletariat is a Roman model, um, if not 1848, then you could make the case more strongly for 1917. So is it an emergency politics? Tell us, George. No, I don't think so. Thank you for the, the etymology. That was um, rather interesting. But no, I just, I just think the there's a there's a few reasons why I think it's not an it's not an it's not an exception. It's not an emergency that the dictatorship of the proletariat because it's not there's no even um there's no possibility there's no pretense of going back to normal it's not a like it's not a blip it's a it's a step forward it's a new stage of history it's a new sort of society um and i think the i just don't get i just don't think this idea of a kind of schmittian marxism uh, this way of mobilizing people i just don't i think the it kind of puts that exception norm relationship above the one of sovereignty and subjectivity and i think that that is just the, the wrong construal of like what, what do you mean what, by that marxist so i think the you know the the i guess the theoretical problem i would have with schmidt's understanding of of sovereignty is that it doesn't or my understanding of it would be that it doesn't really have a isn't there's no relationship to the ruled there's no relationship to the subject and to the conditions of the subject of subjectivity that that dialectically or whatever make up sovereignty instead it's about a con- it's a kind of a fixed condition of somebody or some situation of power that's suspended and and brought back in in order to change the law so it doesn't have that constitutive relationship between um the sovereign and the subject um at the center i think that's right and this touches upon actually another point raised by a listener which we'll come to um i think it's a good point george um i think about the the difference and also it's worth i think it's um i think it's adorno who derided schmidt's friend enemy distinction as essentially infantile mm-hmm. um and it's the most the idea that politics is about kind of you know the idea of enemies as these existential threats that need to be totally eliminated um, is the view, the literal viewpoint of the child, the way the child sees rivals for affection in its early, in its early development. Um, So he kind of, it's a brilliant, I thought it's the most brilliant, succinct response to the Schmittian ideal, because it, you know, the Schmittian ideal does have an allure 
for those who are kind of um, repulsed by the liberal vision of politics as all technocratic administration. Um, but then Adorno gives this very kind of powerful response, which is just to say friend enemy is just it's infantile. Well, and and it, I think it, it's it's, it, it's accurate. It, it's precisely an ultra politics of, you know, total destruction of the enemy rather than a meta politics of trying to move beyond the the kind of. I wondered how far we could get into it well, without, <laughs> without you bringing in once here. Um, but I think we got pretty good. I think we got in pretty we, deep into but, it without before but, you bring sorry, in. Are, we, are, we but, all, are we all assuming that children are bad here? Like, yes. Adorno saying yes, that this is childish. Of course they're bad. Um, I believe that I believe the children are the future. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but lead no, them right I don't. Let, um, um, the way. So, they're robots, actually. But anyway, so the, uh, the there is actually one reference in the text, actually, to, to Soviet communism. Uh, well, or, or at least to Soviets, right? Because he talks about this other uh, juridical thinker, Volsendorf, who has an associational theory where the state should preserve law. It's the guardian, not the master. Um, and uh, Volsendorf sees in the idea of Soviets an expression of this tendency to associational self-government, to confining the state to the pure function that belongs to it. Now, I mean, that would be, I guess, I think consistent. that's accurate. That, yeah, I think that's accurate. True, too. But there is, in the moment of the seizure of state power in the dictators of the proletariat, I do think an emerge a, a kind of moment of exception in the overcoming of the old order. And in instituting a new order. So I'm kind of, I mean, I, I, I'm agreeing with George, but I don't think um, necessarily should, dis, should dispense with the notion. I think, yeah, I mean, the I'd decisionistic say... element, because I think that's important. It is the party saying this is, we're deciding now we are the rule. We're instituting ourselves as sovereign. Um, and that there will be well, exceptional not moments. Not the party, but the new, but the proletariat through well, its political representatives. Yeah. Which may, you know, which may be, which I mean, you know, as in the case in in uh, in the October Revolution, you know, was not just the Bolsheviks but also the left social revolutionaries. But anyway, um, I think, I mean, the so I think George's point is well made, um, and also I would I would add, I guess, to it again, I would emphasize, that, you know, I think the norm is actually the hard part of it rather than the exception, and so and I think that is if you want kind of a new political order. Um, then you need then you need to think about the norm rather than the exception, I think. And the exception will only kind of you can only keep on circling around the status quo or deferring it with constant exceptionalism, which seems to be the pattern of politics, at least since 9-11, if not before. So so what you're saying is that kind of the exception. Yeah, that's the kind of the flashy, the jazzy, the kind of interesting. That's the sexy bit of sovereignty, but the hard graft the kind of the boring day-to-day, -day, the kind of the real work, that's the norm. Um, and yeah. so you shouldn't be seduced by the, the kind of the, it's like, um, you know, you, you, you need to, you need to, 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 to take it to the level of football. You need to kind of, you need to earn the right to play football. You need to like put in the yards in order to do the, to do the tricks. And if you're just doing the latter, then, you know, you, you're not really, you're not doing the hard work that's necessary to, um, to, to be sovereign. I was actually going to bring in a football metaphor when I was reading this about the referee <laughs> and and uh, video assist well, video assisted refereeing empowered by the football I got authorities first. and whatever. Yeah. But so we, we moving on anyway. Moving on. Um, there were some questions which I'm afraid we couldn't. We don't have. We didn't have time, so we had to be selective because we didn't have time to get through all of them. But um, we'll always do our best. Um, but we need to leave the lead, read, London reading group behind um, to move on to a question from a listener called Ian Hunter. 
um, who uh, makes, in fact, draws, makes this point about um, the dialectical approach of keeping opposing tendencies in tension and seeking to um, synthesize them, I suppose, both analytically and also um, institutionally, I suppose, ultimately. So um, Ian, Ian uh, sent us some points talking about the limits of Schmittian um, understanding of legality and constitution making, um, whereas so accepting some of Schmidt's criticisms about um, about Kelsen, but having his own type of having his own problem, um, and what um, what Hunter suggests is that so. And this, I suppose, builds on what I was saying. So Schmidt makes the claim that it is not merely it's Schmidt emphasizes political unity as against Kelsen, he emphasizes political unity over the process of legal elaboration of norm construction. And Hunter responds, Ian Hunter responds to this by saying the truth is you need both, as all good dialecticians know. This is um, a quote from Hunter. And then he has a quote, um, constituent power and constituted power exist in a dialectical relation operating between the Staatsvolk, the people as an active political agency, and Staatsgewalt, the institutional apparatus of the governing authority. Only in this dialectical form do they, do they together constitute the state, what, what alternatively might be called the public sphere. And that's a quote from Martin Lochlin, um, who's a constitutional lawyer, uh, political theorist at the LSC, and probably... Um, probably the single greatest living um, constitutional theorist in the English writing in the English language at the moment. Um, so thank you very much for uh, for, take, for giving us the quote, because I think it more succinctly answers some of the um, some of the issues we've been kind of grappling or bouncing around between um, on, on the pod thus far. So then the, the final um, question or issue raised by one of the listeners, in this case, Charles Hay, and I'm going to read out the quote. Methodologically, I cannot but place him, i.e. Schmidt, in the company of post-war judicial activists of different political strands that are equally frustrated of both parliamentary legislative processes and state bureaucracy. But instead of appealing to a higher legal order, such as human morality, European integration, the vague wordings of written constitution, Schmidt seems to appeal to the will of the people in order to create a popular rather than an enlightened or benevolent dictatorship that is political rather than juristocratic. I think that's right. I think, in fact, it's very accurate of um, Schmidt's idea. So it is, it's democratic in so, in so much as it's popular, um, but it's an authoritarian populism, I think. Um, it's supposed to be, it's, and which is also the, I mean, I suppose it would be plebiscitary in ways, in some ways, um, and it's a particular kind of dictatorship, political dictatorship, popular dictatorship in the sense that it authorizes itself by reference to the will of the people and trying to embody directly, kind of instantiate that will, um, but without recourse to a ramified set of uh, norms or without a ramified set of institutions through which will is mediated and represented. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing which has um, characterized all of the questions that we've had is that they're very uh, thoughtful and really difficult. I think to bring these two questions together, the like, I think that there is definitely something like about how the, this, this um, Schmidt does try to escape from, I guess, the, the standard kind of liberal, bourgeois liberal like modes of, of governance through this 
the, the person of the sovereign who has this kind of essentially theoretically unconstrained power. But I think what this doesn't, and, you know, to bring these two questions together, what this doesn't um, uh, understand or doesn't, what Schmidt doesn't capture is that Lachlan, that it isn't an un, in reality, it's not an unconstrained power because there's an unconstrained, so you can make any sort of decision, but it, it is that relationship between the people as political, active political agency and the institutional apparatus of the governing body. That's what constrains sovereignty. So it isn't completely an open field, as Schmidt would would suggest, but it is in a dialectical relation with with the people. And I have to say, I mean that 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 Lachlan Knight point um, that Ian Hunter brought in, you know, with a with a really excellent question. I put so much more succinctly what I had to put in my notes when reading this book. And then I realized, oh yeah, that probably that's where I got it from. I'd forgotten that I'd, that I'd kind of taken that point from, from, uh, from Martin. So yeah, a good reminder of like um, a, a, an excellent approach to, to think about sovereignty. We should put, we should put something in the, in the show notes actually for people to follow up on that. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good idea. And I would, maybe that's my response to, um, Maybe that's my response to the London Reading Group about whether or not the left needs a Schmittian sovereign. And given the fact that we seem to have various versions of Schmittian sovereignty to a greater or lesser degree, even if disguised um, in technocratic ways, um, uh, I would say I suppose we need a Lachlanite idea of sovereignty rather than a Schmittian one. I think that would be, if we if it has to have a theoretical label, that would be the theoretical label I'd give it. Okay. Well, um, so uh, once again, thanks to all the listeners, um, particularly the ones who sent in questions and organized reading clubs. And um, I would, uh, I'll hand over to Alex. Well, just very briefly to say uh, we are back uh, next time in about a month's time. We're going to firm up the date and let you know as soon as possible. It'll be at the end of February or at the very beginning of March. February is a short month, so we might uh, stick it into early March. And we'll be discussing Giorgio Agamben's State of Exception. I think it's around 100 pages, um, so uh, definitely readable in that time. Uh, so once again, we hope you've uh, enjoyed this, you've taken from it, send us your questions and comments about the the way we do it as well, if you wish. And once again, if you are still looking to join up uh, with someone in real life uh, near where you live, get us get in touch with us. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if uh, we haven't listed your city, if you're based in Australia, for example, um, and want to get in touch with people uh, where you live, uh, we'll try to help uh, bring you all together as the, as the sovereign entity of of bunga um but we're we're actually mere conveyors of the real sovereign uh silvio berlusconi so um anyway we'll be back next time uh thank you for listening catch you later bye-bye <laughs>